0: Please join me in the reading of the word from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Eric, the pastor here at Trinity. I don't think I need too much of an introduction to get anybody's attention this morning. But I'm going to hit the pause button. We'll get to what Jesus said there in that passage in just a moment. Um, But I do want to highlight one more announcement that's in the bulletin. And so if you look on page 8, this is an important one. I've been here at Trinity for about 10, 11 months, I think. It's, It's going to be 11 months, and it's gone by fast i can't believe it's been 11 months and i said to many of you coming to this new calling that there were two words that were my theme words for year 1 with all of you and those words were no and slow and i realized i had to clarify that when i when i was saying no i wasn't saying no but know so it wasn't that i was saying no to everything but this year would be dedicated to slowly getting to know all of you, as well as slowly getting to know this community in this context that God has called us all to live in and to serve uh, on mission too. And so the, the announcement that I want to point out is the second announcement there on page eight, and this is an important step in getting to know all of you better. We're doing a congregational survey. The goal is that every single person, member, regular attender, those of you who believe this will be your church home, would you fill out this survey. You're going to have a little bit over a week to fill it out. So there's the link. You can type that link in and fill it out. We'll also be sending out an e-news with this link. So if you're not on our e-news list or if your e-news is always going to your spam folder or some other folder, this is a good time. For you to clean that up. So we are, we are excited about this as we discern who are we, who has got called together in this unique church, Trinity OC, and as we look forward to what's next and what He's calling us to do. So please take time to do that. Take about 10 or 15 minutes. Okay, so what Jesus said in Matthew 5 that we just heard. We're on a series on the most well-known sermon in the Bible, which is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And I've called this sermon series, Flourish, because as Jesus clearly shows us from the very beginning of this sermon, that this entire sermon, Matthew 5 through 7, is to be seen as an invitation to flourish, to live the blessed life, to live the life that God designed and intended us to live. In this part of the sermon that we're in currently, Jesus is moving through six very specific and very practical areas of our lives that we need to examine. Areas of our lives that we need to be addressed in order for us to flourish. Last week, we saw that He began with anger and reconciliation. And now number two on Jesus' list is our sexuality and lust. So as we take a moment and just... React and respond to what we just heard read, what Jesus said in this sermon. Maybe our first response is, Wow, that sounds a little puritanical, maybe prudish, maybe repressive. For those of us who are more open to what Jesus has to say about this area, we might even feel like, I'm open to it, but it just sounds unrealistic. Living in a culture that has gone through what has been called the sexual revolution. We're still living in that that culture, and the sexual revolution was all about there are no boundaries when it comes to sexuality. We express ourselves. It's a way that we enjoy ourselves. And so this sounds like when we hear it, this is going backwards, away from flourishing, not towards flourishing. So is lust something that we really need to cut out, to cut out of our lives in order that we might flourish? Jesus says yes. And not only does he say yes, he says you need to be ruthless about it, you need to be radical about this. And our culture in which we live in, it, it kind of sends us these mixed messages about our sexuality. On the one hand, sex is trivialized, and on the other hand, it's, it's idolized. It's trivialized in that it's everywhere. We encounter lust when we're in the checkout line at the grocery store. All the magazine headlines are about feeding our lust. When we're driving down the freeway, billboards that we see, and the commercials that confront us every time we're watching any show on TV. Sensuality and lust is even used to sell cheeseburgers, and that's where we've come. And then there's the internet where we have one click away where we can encounter images calls to engage and to feed our lust. And so it's not even that we have to go looking for lust. Lust is everywhere looking for us. A number of years ago, NPR did a series on the seven deadly sins, and they interviewed uh, this Cambridge philosophy professor. His name um, was Simon Blackburn. And so he wrote a, a book on the seven deadly sins, and they were focusing in on lust, and they asked him about it. towards the end, he says, lust is is really just a simple mathematical equation. We have our hormones, our desires, and our imagination. That's really all it is. And his conclusion at the very end of the episode was, it's not really deadly, and it's not really a sin. So what's the big deal? And so many of us are asking, how can something so pervasive and something that's everywhere actually be wrong and harmful? And if it is, then how can I possibly avoid lust? So sex is trivialized. It's also idolized. We look to our lust to lead us to our ultimate satisfaction. Our popular songs, many of their messages are, follow your lust and you will be fulfilled. You'll find meaning. Our sexual inclinations, our sexual identity, we consider it a part of ourselves. It, it is a part of our identity, things that provide us with meaning. So when Jesus says, and we hear him say, cut this part of your lives off, it sounds like he's saying, cut off a part of our lives that bring us fulfillment and meaning and satisfaction and lust that's going to lead us to find these things. So Jesus is speaking to something that has a central place and has a lot of power in our lives. So if we take what Jesus says seriously... Then no matter where we are with our sexuality, with lust, whatever our history, whatever our orientation or our struggle, it's not going to be easy. So let's look at this this morning. We're going to look at three points if you're following along in your outline. How does Jesus redefine sexual faithfulness? How he tells us to take drastic measures against lust? And then thirdly, how do we find sexual holiness? and wholeness. So first, looking at verse 27, Jesus begins and He says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So here's Jesus' definition of sexual faithfulness and flourishing. It goes far deeper than just simply the act of having a sexual relationship with somebody who is not your spouse it goes deeper. He says, the definition of adultery and sexual faithfulness is not just a matter of our bodies. It's a matter of our hearts. It's not just a matter of our hearts. It's a matter of the intention of our hearts. What is your heart looking to? And what is your heart looking for? So there is such a thing, Jesus says, as adultery of the heart, and that amounts to sexual unfaithfulness. So this definition of sexual faithfulness, it's pretty radical. It was radical then. There was kind of a double standard for men. As long as they weren't lusting after or engaging in sexual actions with somebody who was another person's wife, in many corners of Judaism they had a lot of freedom. So it was radical then, and it is radical now. So The first step, I think, in responding to this is to step back and ask ourselves, what is my, what is, how do I define sexual faithfulness? And flourishing. And where did I learn this definition? Where did I get it in the first place? For me, and for many of us, it is not from Jesus where we got our definition. Where did I learn about sexuality? In large part, it was through 80s and 90s rap, R&B music, my friends, and unfortunately being exposed to pornography. All that is built on lust. All that is fueled by lust. But in order for us to understand, in order for us to embrace Jesus' redefinition of sexual faithfulness, we need to see what He says in the context of the Bible's teaching on our sexuality. So the first point is to remember that God is not anti-sex. To be anti-lust is not to be anti-sex. Jesus and the whole Bible are enthusiastically pro-sex. God is the creator. God is the designer of our sexuality, so God is the original. God is the only sex expert that there is. When He created Adam and Eve naked, the very first commandment in the whole Bible, man and woman naked, He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the entire earth with people. And this would require married couples to have a lot of sex, a lot of enjoyment in that sex, to fill the earth with people. What is God's favorite song? Well, it's in the Bible. He's given it to us. It might have a different name if you look in the table of context in your Bible. But in many Bibles, it's called the Song of Songs, sometimes called the Song of Solomon. The Song of Songs is this erotic love poem between a husband and a wife, and it's God's favorite song. He calls it the song of all songs. Proverbs 5, 19 says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. So God created something that is intoxicatingly pleasurable, and He gave it to us as a gift to enjoy in the covenant of marriage, and also to show us something about Himself, who He is. I realize the church has not always done a good job at building this definition of sexual faithfulness, balancing the goodness and the delightfulness of sexuality that has God created with the warnings against misuse and distortions. Because our sexual desires can be so strong, Because they're so powerful and because they seemingly inevitably lead us to lust, that they're untamable, the church has often given us the message that they are wrong, they should be suppressed, and they shouldn't be talked about. And that's damaging, that's not biblical, and that's shaming. So with all this background in mind, we we can conclude a few things about lust. Lust is not the same thing as sexual desire. All human beings have sexual desire. Lustful looking is not the same as attraction. It's not speaking of noticing beauty and attractiveness. The translation of the word to look in our passage is important. The word there is a lingering look, a continuing look, a look with an intention to dwell. And so a definition of lust might be this, to covet or desire someone sexually who has not been given to you by God as your spouse. What Jesus is doing here is He is combining the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, with the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. So with all that in mind, we get a glimpse of why Jesus is so ruthless when it comes to lust. Lust leads us Not towards, but away from what God designed our sex and our sexuality for. One thing that I've learned as being the father of four boys is that boys are experts at completely violating the intended purpose of any object and turning it on its head. So pillows are soft and fluffy. They're they're there for relaxation and comfort. And yet my boys can turn them into missiles of destruction. And a broom is for cleaning and sweeping, yet it can become an instrument to torture another brother. And the couch, back to the couch, the couch is for sitting, it's for conversation, and they can turn it into a trampoline. The Bible says sin, what sin is, it means that we are experts at taking good, beautiful gifts and distorting not only misusing them, but missing their intended purpose and their meaning and their joy. So lust won't lead us towards sexual flourishing, but only a way. There's a book by Lauren Winner. It's called Real Sex. I would highly recommend this book, Lauren Winner, Real Sex. She gives us three specific truths that summarizes the Bible's teaching on sex. And I want to contrast those with lust, one at a time. She says sex, a good theology of sex, recognizes that it's unitive, it's creative, and it's sacramental. First, unitive. Sex is meant to unite two whole people. Lust leads us to objectify people. The first description of sex in the Bible is Genesis 4.1. Adam knew Eve, his wife. You see the difference between that and what Jesus is talking about here? He says anyone who looks at a woman to lust versus Adam knew Eve, his wife. The differences are very significant. The woman of lust or the man of lust is an anonymous object. Eve has a name. The woman or man is something to look at. Eve knows Adam. Adam knows Eve, her name, his name, her name, her heart, his heart as a whole person. Lust says, I don't want to know you. I just want to look at you. I just want to use you. And lust turns people then into objects to use, not into whole people. In 1 Corinthians 6.16, the Apostle Paul is talking about a problem that the, the Corinthians were facing and that they were trying to figure out sexual faithfulness themselves. It was a practice in that city and in that time. It was a common practice to visit temple prostitutes. He says to them, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Sex is unitive. It unites the husband and the wife in oneness, relationally, spiritually, and emotionally, and physically. Second, sex is creative. It's meant to give life, but lust looks only to take and to get. I know this is obvious, but sex is how human beings give life to other human beings. I don't know if you've heard this Geico commercial that's been on the radio lately, but I was in the car, just me and my eight-year-old son, and there's a little girl that comes on, you hear her, and she says, Dad, where do babies come from? (laughs) The dad starts fumbling a little bit, "Uh, where's your mother? She's at the store. She's not here. He says, okay, sweetheart, there's a mommy, and there's a daddy, and they save." 15% 15% by shopping their car insurance at Geico. And the little girl says, And that makes them happy? And he, and he says, Yes. Well, we were in the car listening to that commercial, and my eight year old son says, Daddy, he, he didn't answer the question. I'm like, no, he didn't answer the question, did he? He completely avoided it. And I said, We had this conversation. I said, Sex is a normal thing. It's where all people come from. And so it's something that families should talk about. And then he says, I'm going to tell my kids all about it. They <laughs> <I> said, good, <laughs> that's good. I was reading a story of a couple who had their first child, and when the husband held the baby in his hands for the first time, he brought it to the, to the mother and said, she's forever. And <laughs> They just had that moment of awe. This person is an eternal being and somehow we gave life to this being. Theologians debate the question, this is a theological conundrum, where does the soul come from? Does the soul come from heaven and get injected somehow into the baby in the womb? Is the soul somehow transmitted when the egg is fertilized? It's this mystery. But what we do know is that in one sense, sex is a clue to the mystery of why God created the world in the first place. Why would God, we sung about it earlier, a trinity in perfect union with Himself, a being of perfect joy and delight from all eternity, why did He create us? It's because it's the nature of love to overflow and to give life, a loving union begets, creates life. And here we see sex giving us a clue of why we even exist in the first place. Lust is not interested in the overflow of love. It's not thinking beyond itself. It's just interested in self-fulfillment in what it can take and get. Sex is unitive, creative, and sacramental. That means that sex is never just about sex. But lust is only about sex. A sacrament is a physical sign that points beyond itself to a greater and deeper reality. That's what a sacrament is. And sex is a sacrament. It's a sign of the covenant of love. It's a way that the promise, the marriage promise, is remembered and reenacted to tell your spouse, I belong completely to you, I belong wholly to you, I belong exclusively to you. And there's a mystery there that even beyond marriage, it points us as a sacrament to God's passionate love and delight in us, as God designed marriage to do. Lust only sees sexual desire as an end in itself. It's just about pleasure. Just to summarize all these things, in Jesus' redefinition of sexual faithfulness, He says sex is essential to human flourishing. We see the backdrop as to why. Because it unites a husband and wife. It brings life into the world. It's a sign that even the most powerful, even the most pleasurable of all human experiences, points us beyond to a greater delight and a greater joy and a greater love. Which leads us to our next point. Because sexual faithfulness is an essential part of our flourishing and the flourishing of others, and because lust leads us away from this into heart adultery, we must take, Jesus says, drastic measures against lust in our lives. And so he says, back to our text, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. However we interpret that, that is drastic language. These are drastic measures Jesus is talking about. How literally do we take this? Well, in the second and third century, some took it very, very literally. There was a church father named Origen, second and third century, who his struggle with lust was so powerful that he said, I'm going to take this exactly as it says, and he made himself a eunuch. It's painful to think about that. Only a few years later, in response to the literal interpretation of passages like this, the Council of Nicaea officially condemned the literal interpretation of a passage like this. And so we can all say, thank God for the Council of Nicaea on that one. Jesus is saying we need to take drastic measures of all kinds of lust. It may be a pornographic addiction. It may be tolerating low-grade lust and fantasies. For some, it may not be primarily sexually in nature, but a lust for companionship, connectedness, emotional connectedness with another, Loneliness, whether in singleness or in marriage. There are consequences, Jesus says, to unaddress lust, and there are implications, practical implications that flow out of this. I want to talk first about the consequences. Though many in our culture would say lust is harmless, it's harmless fun, it's natural desire. Jesus says if we don't cut it out of our lives, there are grave consequences. One, the more we indulge our lust, the more we distance ourselves from true sexual flourishing. There are voices outside of Christianity that are beginning to acknowledge this when it comes to the pervasiveness of lust and pornography in our culture. One of these voices is uh, Naomi Wolf, who is a feminist author. She wrote in an article, The Beauty Myth." she wrote this. When beauty pornography is aimed at men, its effect is to keep them from finding peace and sexual love. The fleeting chimera of the airbrush centerfold always receding before him keeps the man destabilized in pursuit, unable to focus on the beauty of the woman known, marked, lined, familiar, who hands him the paper every morning. People are not closer because of porn, but further apart. People are not more turned on in their daily lives, but less so. The more we indulge our lust, the further we get from God's design for sexual flourishing. Secondly, lust It trains us to avoid the hard work of love. Lust is the pursuit of sexual pleasure without that hard work. And sexual pleasure was never meant to be easy or cheap. It's the reward of promises kept. It's the gift of fighting for tenderness. It's the result of deep forgiveness. It comes with risking being known and knowing someone fully as they really are. One of our reflection quotes in the bulletin from Paul Ricoeur says it like this, second reflection quote. Everything that makes the sexual encounter easy simultaneously speeds its collapse into insignificance. Thirdly, and more directly seen in our passage, lust brings Gehenna into our lives sooner or later. The word that is translated hell in our passage is literally the word Gehenna. Gehenna was a literal place. It was a a trash heap, a burning garbage dump outside of the city of Jerusalem. Obviously not a place you wanted to go. Obviously not a place you wanted to stay. A place where there was absence of life, blessing, and flourishing. When it comes to lust, it's better that Jesus brings Gehenna into our lives now than later. Often in dealing with lust, we avoid it, we put it off, we cover it up until we're found out, until we can't anymore. Jesus said even that is a gift of grace because to hold on to lust, to be ruled by lust, to ignore what He has to say is to result in a life lived outside of the blessing of God and His presence. Those are the consequences. What are the implications? I want to speak practically here. If we struggle with lust deep down in our hearts, many of us are praying the prayer of St. Augustine, the first reflection quote here in the bulletin, Lord, he said in his younger years, give me chastity and continence, but not yet. Jesus says we need to change that prayer. Lord, give me chastity and freedom from lust, whatever the cost. So practical implications. One, our lust needs to come out of hiding. Lust thrives in hiding and isolation. We need to balance this intense passage. This is intense. This is Jesus going right at it. We need to balance this with how Jesus actually treated the sexually struggling and broken people with whom He encountered. For example, the woman at the well, the prostitute who came weeping at His feet, the woman caught in adultery, we see Jesus, when He approached these these women in particular, was so gentle, was so compassionate, so longed for them to find healing and wholeness. And that should lead us to know that if we come out of hiding, if we come in honesty, this is how Jesus will meet us and treat us. It needs to come out of hiding and just handling it all by ourselves. This is something that can't be handled alone, but needs to be dealt with with trusted community and with holistic accountability. It needs to be a part of our conversation in our families, with our kids, in our marriages. Instead of trivializing it, we need to normalize the conversation about sex and lust. Second implication, we need to look at what we look at, how we consume media. In contrast to how sexuality is portrayed in our culture, the way that the Bible just displays and talks about our sexuality is indirect. It's poetic, it's discreet, it's beautiful, not vulgar, not direct. So we just need to take inventory. Are we becoming numb to being bombarded with all the calls to lust. I was convicted here this week. There's a TV show that Amelia and I enjoy, and I just told her, it's just numbing me. We can't watch it anymore because this is just too important. And I realize it's so easy just to slide and say, this is just normal. This isn't affecting me. Jesus says, we need to look at what we look at. And he says, thirdly, don't delay I think although we trivialize sex, we idolize sex, we know in our culture when sex has gone wrong, when lust has gone wrong, the damage it can do. It can destroy a marriage, it can to affairs and adultery, it can enslave as an addiction, it can cause great damage, sexual abuse and exploitation, slavery and human trafficking. All are a result of lust. No one wakes up in the morning and just says, today is the day I'm going to have an affair with a co-worker or a friend. No one wakes up in the morning and says, today I'm going to become enslaved to pornography. All these things start with not cutting off lust. Jesus says, don't delay. The last implication is that progress will be painful and costly. Regardless of your marital status, your sexual orientation, sexual past, it's not easy. And it will feel like at times that a piece of us is being cut off and cut out of our lives. Those are the consequences. Those are the implications. Cutting off hands, cutting out our eyes sounds like Jesus is saying, cut off pieces of yourself, cut off pieces of your humanity. We need to see that Jesus' call to be ruthless is a call for us to find sexual holiness and wholeness, which is my third point. The way that I want to move through this final point is to share with you three statements. There are three quotations from various different authors that have been foundational, that have been key, that have been a part of my own finding sexual wholeness and holiness in my life. And these quotes have stuck with me. I want to share these with you. The first is from a guy named Nate Larkin. He wrote a book called Samson and the Pirate Monks. We'll see if we can get that quote up on the screen. He said, I'm paraphrasing his quote, lust is not your most important problem. Lust is your favorite solution to deal with your most important problems. Cutting off lust is really just the first step in becoming whole and becoming holy, both sexually and relationally. It means taking drastic action, but also being careful to not become obsessed over this just one particular issue in our lives, and that's what lust can do. And one of its most grievous results is that we are evaluating our spirituality, our relationship with God just based on this one particular issue. When we cut off lust, that's when the real work can begin toward becoming holy and whole in our lives. Lust can be used as our favorite solution to loneliness, emptiness, boredom, pain, fear of relationships many other things but the problem that lust thrives on the most in our lives is shame or shame the sense that something is wrong with us or that we are not worthy and so the last thing that someone needs who is struggling with lust and sexual brokenness is to be driven further into hiding and shame and to be loaded down with guilt the gospel calls us out of hiding telling us we are fully known And fully loved, even when we struggle with lust, even in our failures with lust. For those who struggle here, the most important moments toward finding sexual holiness and wholeness will be the moments when you fail and fall. Because that's when shame can kick in. You can either go deeper into the spiral of shame and go back to your favorite solution, or go deeper into the truths of the gospel, that you are known, fully known, and fully loved. That's quote number one, second quote. From Frederick Buechner, he said, lust is the craving for salt of a man dying of thirst. In John 4, I referenced this earlier, the woman at the well. Her life was ruled by lust and adultery. She had five husbands. She was living with somebody who wasn't her current husband. And Jesus' message to her was this, you're thirsty, you're thirsty, and how you're looking to quench your thirst, it's never going to work. Lust can work for an instant, but it leaves us emptier and thirstier. The only cure for the adulterous heart is to have our thirst quenched and satisfied by a greater love, a perfect love. The only thing that can drive out the passion of lust is a better and more satisfying love that quenches our thirst to be known and be loved, even in our brokenness and sin and shame and guilt. If I said to you, let me share a story with you. I know a spouse, and this spouse tragically has been serially unfaithful. Throughout their relationship, this spouse has had a deep addiction to lust. The faithful spouse has known about it all along, all of it. The faithful spouse has continued to pursue the unfaithful spouse, has continually pleaded with them, has continually forgiven them, gone beyond lust many times into adultery, numerous affairs, yet the faithful spouse never wavered, always pursued, was always there. The gospel is that we are the unfaithful spouse, but God is the faithful lover. Though we refuse to cut off lust, though we delay, and we direct our thirst away from God by placing our pleasure over relationship with Him. Jesus was willing to be completely cut off, not just a part of Him, but His entire life cut off and experience the unquenchable thirst of being separated from God for the sake of relationship with us. He is faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to Him. And ultimately, only this deeply satisfying love can drive out the lesser desire, the lesser power of lust. Third quote. Sometimes this is attributed to G.K. Chesterton, but this is um, the origin of this quote. It's from a novel called The World, the Flesh, and Father Smith by Bruce Marshall says, the young man who rings the door at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. The 2017 version would be everyone who is searching for pornography, feeding their lust, is really searching for God. And this is profoundly important for all of our battles with lust. Early on in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. The goal of cutting off lust is not to cut off lust. If that is our goal, it will never be enough. The goal of cutting off lust is so that we could see God, so that we could know Him, so that we could see Him as He is in the fullness of His grace, in the totality of His compassion, in His joy and delight, over us, even in our sin. And the more clearly we see God as He is, gracious, holy, compassionate, the more we'll be able to see other people as He does, people He made in His image, not to be used, not to be looked at, but to be loved, to be loved as He loves them. May we see God. May He give us that kind of purity of heart. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is a hard subject. This is a sensitive subject. But we know it's important to You. I pray this morning... For all of us, younger or older, married or single, struggling here or not currently struggling, that you would make this a day where we can really hear these words for us. That we would hear the words of seriousness and drastic action, and that you would help us take action. We'd be a community where it's safe to do so. But I also pray. Lord, that we would hear the loving song of your heart for us. That we would hear deep in our souls that there is a satisfying love. There is something that can quench our thirst. And Lord, may we drink deeply and may we drink fully of your love. Set us free, Lord that we might flourish, and that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.